Six Jours by Albertine Clément Emery. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chant premier, introduction, à Coralie. Les souvenirs forment la mythologie des cœurs sensibles. La première fois que je te vis, je sentis naître dans mon âme une subite et vive flamme. Je crois même que je pâlis. Mon sang courait de veine en veine. Je ne respirais qu'avec peine. Tu me regardas. Je rougis. Le lendemain fut autre chose. Je vis sur tes lèvres de rose le plus agréable sourire. Osant presque être téméraire, je m'approchai de toi, ma chère. Tu lus dans mes yeux attendris une pure et sincère ivresse. Tu jugeas ma délicatesse, et tout près de toi, je m'assis. Tu me parlas. Qu'il t'en souvienne. Ma main osa presser la tienne. Je balbutiai, je frémis. Huit jours après, j'osai t'écrire ce que je n'osais pas te dire. Ton cœur ne parut pas surpris. Bientôt, tu daignas me promettre de répondre un jour à ma lettre. Un mois entier, je l'attendis. Pendant ce temps, ton âme émue s'agitait souvent à ma vue. Grâce à l'amour, tu te trahis, et tu me dis enfin, « Je t'aime. » Divine moitié de moi-même, toi que pour jamais je chéris, te rappelles-tu mon délire Je pleurais, je riais sans rire, mes sens étaient anéantis. Lorsque je revins à la vie, je t'appelais ma seule amie, entre mes bras je t'étreignis. Ma sincérité, ma constance, me valurent ta confiance, un doux baiser en fut le prix. Depuis cet instant, mon ivresse n'a fait qu'accroître ma tendresse et le bonheur dont je jouis. Chant deuxième La demande Le bonheur est un rayon du soleil que la moindre ombre peut intercepter. Confucius Tu m'as promis un doux gage d'amour. T'en souviens-tu, mon adorable ami c'était le lendemain du jour où ton aveu me fit chérir la vie, où tu daignas m'accorder un baiser, où... Souviens-toi de mon ivresse. Tu ne pourrais me refuser une preuve de ta tendresse sans outrager le sentiment dont l'Éternel accueillit le serment. De ta soyeuse et blonde chevelure, daigne détacher un anneau. Il restera, je te le jure, sur mon cœur jusque au tombeau. Ce don est, j'en conviens, une faveur extrême, c'est un prix qui n'est dû qu'à l'amour. Mais que peut-on refuser quand on aime et qu'on est payé de retour Chant troisième Le refus Tout paraît prophétique au malheureux. La douleur est superstitieuse. Vicomte d'Ablincourt L'ai-je bien entendu, Coralie Tu refuses le prix du plus ardent amour Sans craindre m'outrager, tu te plains, tu m'accuses Tendre et coquette tour à tour, tu m'enivres d'espoir, tu déchires mon âme, tu veux et ne veux pas, tu grondes, tu souris. Ton regard enchanteur augmente encore ma flamme, et bientôt tu m'anéantis par un cruel refus, par une raillerie. Coralie, dis-moi, m'aimes-tu Tu connais mon idolâtrie. Croirais-tu prouver la vertu en feignant de la défiance, en me privant d'un don pour moi si précieux Souviens-toi qu'en amour on ne peut être heureux sans une entière confiance. 
je te supplie encore de vouloir bien m'accorder ce don auquel je tiens beaucoup plus qu'à la vie. De grâce, daigne me céder, n'excite pas ma jalousie, ne brise pas un cœur tout plein de toi, tu déchirerais ton image. Si tu méprises mon hommage, pourquoi donc m'engager ta foi Ne serais-tu qu'une perfide N'embrassas-tu mon cœur qu'afin de le trahir Dis-moi quel sentiment te guide et s'il faut vivre ou mourir. Chant quatrième, le dépit Croire être trahi de ce qu'on aime est une douleur plus insupportable que d'en pleurer la mort. Madame de Tansin Non, Coralie, tu n'aimes pas. Ne m'abuse plus, je te prie. Tout en admirant tes appas, depuis hier je t'apprécie. Je ne crois pas que la pudeur ait dicté ton refus étrange. Tu n'es qu'un démon imposteur sous les traits célestes d'un ange. Grâce à toi, mes yeux sont ouverts. Tu m'as fait verser bien des larmes. Trompe, si tu veux, l'univers. Je ne redoute plus tes charmes. À ton sourire, à ton regard, j'opposerai la perfidie. À ton esprit, don du hasard, ton insigne coquetterie, ton doux parler si séducteur comme celui de la sirène, ne fera plus battre mon cœur. Sois tant qu'il te plaît inhumaine, ton empire est enfin détruit. Ton refus à briser ma chaîne, je renonce à l'amour maudit et lui voue à jamais ma haine. Le temps de toi me vengera, tu cesseras d'être jolie, à ton tour on te trompera. Le chagrin brisera ta vie et les pleurs que tu verseras exciteront la raillerie. Alors tu me regretteras. Souvent, dans ta douleur amère, en gémissant, tu te diras « Sa flamme était pure, sincère, j'ai méprisé son tendre amour. Aujourd'hui, j'en suis bien punie, j'aime sans espoir de retour. J'accorde tout, je suis trahie. Gaiement, j'ai déchiré le cœur où je régnais en souveraine, en refusant une faveur que je prodiguerais sans peine si l'on m'en imposait la loi. Je sens toute mon injustice. » J'ai faussé mes serments, ma foi, pour n'écouter que le caprice et flétrir un cœur tout à moi. Chant cinquième La rupture L'illusion n'est pas à l'usage du malheureux. Mademoiselle de l'Espinasse Reprenez ces écrits trompeurs, lisez-les, jugez-vous vous-même. Allez prodiguer vos faveurs à cet Adonis au teint blême. Je ne suis pas jaloux, il est tout aussi faux que vous. Mes billets Conservez-les tous. Je ne rougis que de l'adresse. Mais ils vous prouveront un jour que mon cœur, exempt d'artifice, pour vous était rempli d'amour. Ils deviendront votre supplice lorsque, trahi à votre tour, vous comprendrez votre injustice. En cessant de vous estimer, ne redoutez pas ma vengeance. Celle que j'ai su tant aimer est à l'abri de toute offense. Près de vous, je crus au bonheur. Je n'ai caressé qu'une erreur. Le souvenir m'en plaît encore. Je vous croyais de la candeur. Votre esprit séduisait mon cœur. Ces qualités dont on décore les nobles habitants des cieux, vous les possédiez à mes yeux. Coralie Dieu, qu'allais-je dire Je vous déteste, c'est certain. Ne croyez pas que je soupire. Vous me rappelleriez en vain. Mais cachez-moi votre sourire. Chant sixième. Le rendez-vous. La douleur qui se plaint goûte encore du plaisir. Vous m'attendez 
Espérez-vous encore voir à vos pieds un esclave soumis Tu le sais trop à quel point je t'adore. De mes tourments ingrates tu jouis. Je n'irai pas. Je redoute tes charmes et de tes yeux l'invincible pouvoir. Ai-je bien vu Sur ton billet des larmes Toi, Coralie, je suis au désespoir. Toi, pleurer, toi Serais-je donc coupable Explique-toi, n'ai-je pas un rival Et ce refus à mon cœur si fatal, peux-tu, dis-moi, me le rendre excusable Combien le temps s'écoule lentement Une heure encore pour te voir, pour t'entendre. Nous serons seuls, tu m'en fais le serment. Tu veux, dis-tu, me pardonner, me rendre tous ces écrits que mon cœur a dictés, ces doux aveux de l'amour le plus tendre, et que déjà j'avais tant regretté. Ma Coralie, je tremble, je m'afflige. Est-il bien vrai que ton cœur soit à moi Tant de bonheur n'est-il pas un prestige Je suis ému de plaisir et d'effroi. J'ai tant souffert, mon adorable ami. Je t'aime tant. Et j'ai douté de toi. J'ai soupçonné ton cœur de perfidie. Ange du ciel, peux-tu me pardonner Ce crime, hélas, je ne puis l'expier que par l'entier abandon de ma vie. Mais où m'emporte un apparent espoir Dois-je compter encore sur ta constance Tu veux, dis-tu, me parler et me voir Prouver mes torts, prouver mon inconstance. Je dois alors craindre de t'aborder et redouter ta haine et ta vengeance. Femme jamais ne pardonne une offense quand c'est à tort qu'on a pu l'offenser. Ma Coralie, quel embarras étrange Je n'irai pas, je crains trop ton courroux. Dans un moment je vole au rendez-vous. Que redouter de la bonté d'un ange Chant septième et dernier le raccommodement. Aimer, c'est tout ce que l'imagination peut deviner de la félicité des dieux. Madame du Dessan. Ma Coralie, le souffle de ma vie en te voyant a failli s'exhaler. J'avais des torts. Daigne me pardonner ma tyrannique et sombre jalousie. J'abjure enfin ce sentiment affreux. Pendant six jours, il déchira mon âme. Ton tendre amour, en cédant à mes vœux, a redoublé mon éternelle flamme. Je suis aimée. Quelle pensée enchanteur J'ai vu le ciel dans ton charmant sourire. Contre mon cœur a palpité ton cœur. Tu jouissais de mon heureux délire. Ton front brûlant, rougi par un baiser, de mon amour a reflété l'ivresse. Entre mes bras ta pudique tendresse, sans rien donner, mais sans rien refuser, a pu juger de ma délicatesse. Tout mon bonheur était peint dans tes yeux, divine amie, aimable enchanteresse ah laisse-moi caresser tes cheveux que mes baisers fassent renaître encore ce que pour moi ta tendresse a soustrait tu les verras dans peu de temps éclore plus long plus doux plus brillant que jamais tu m'as prouvé par ta faveur insigne une bonté qui m'assure ton cœur de ce bienfait ton amant était digne ma coralie jouis de mon bonheur end of six jours by albertine clément Emery. Read by Ezwa in Belgium in July 2011. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Six o'clock by Trumbull Stickney. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Now burst above the city's cold twilight the piercing whistles and the tower clocks for day is done. Along the frozen docks the workmen set their ragged shirts aright. Throw factory doors a stream of dingy light, follows the scrimmage as it quickly flocks to hut and home among the snow's gray blocks. I love you, human laborers. Good night. Good night to all the blackened arms that ache. Good night to every sick and sweated brow. To the poor girl that strength and love forsake, To the poor boy who can no more, I vow the victim soon shall shudder at the stake And fall in blood. We bring him even now. End of Six O'Clock by Trumbull Stickney Read by Rhonda Fetterman Six Significant Landscapes by Wallace Stevens From Others, an Anthology of the New Verse, edited by Alfred Kreinborg. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 1. An old man sits in the shadow of a pine tree in China. He sees larkspur, blue and white, at the edge of the shadow, move in the wind. His beard moves in the wind. The pine tree moves in the wind. Thus water flows over weeds. 2. The night is of the colour of a woman's arm. Night, the female, obscure, fragrant, and supple, conceals herself. A pool shines like a bracelet shaken in a dance. 3. I measure myself against a tall tree. I find that I am much taller, for I reach right up to the sun with my eye and I reach to the shore of the sea with my ear. Nevertheless, I dislike the way the ants crawl in and out of my shadow. 4. When my dream was near the moon, the white folds of its gown filled with yellow light. The soles of its feet grew red, its hair filled with certain blue crystallizations from stars not far off. 5. Not all the knives of the lampposts, nor the chisels of the long streets, nor the mallets of the domes and high towers can carve what one star can carve shining through the grape leaves. 6. Rationalists wearing square hats think in square rooms, looking at the floor, looking at the ceiling, 
they confine themselves to right-angled triangles. If they tried rhomboids, cones, waving lines, ellipses, as, for example, the ellipse of the half-moon, rationalists would wear sombreros. End of Six Significant Landscapes by Wallace Stevens Recording by Ruth Golding The Six Sillies A traditional story from Hainaut Province, Belgium Rendered into English by Andrew Lang This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Once upon a time there was a young girl who reached the age of thirty-seven without ever having had a lover, for she was so foolish that no one wanted to marry her. One day, however, a young man arrived to pay his addresses to her, and her mother, beaming with joy, sent her daughter down to the cellar to draw a jug of beer. As the girl never came back, the mother went down to see what had become of her, and found her sitting on the stairs, her head in her hands, while by her side the beer was running all over the floor, as she had forgotten to close the tap. "'What are you doing there?' asked the mother. "'I was thinking what I shall call my first child after I am married to that young man. All the names in the calendar are taken already.' The mother sat down on the staircase beside her daughter and said, I will think about it with you, my dear. The father, who had stayed upstairs with the young man, was surprised that neither the wife nor his daughter came back, and in his turn went down to look for them. He found them both sitting on the stairs, while beside them the beer was running all over the ground from the tap, which was wide open. What are you doing there? The beer is running all over the cellar. We were thinking what we should call the children that our daughter will have when she marries that young man. All the names in the calendar are taken already. Well, said the father, I will think about it with you. As neither mother nor daughter nor father came upstairs again, the lover grew impatient and went down into the cellar to see what they could all be doing. He found them all three sitting on the stairs, while beside them the beer was running all over the ground from the tap, which was wide open. "'What in the world are you all doing that you don't come upstairs, and that you let the beer run all over the cellar?' "'Yes, I know, my boy,' said the father. "'But if you marry our daughter, what shall you call your children? All the names in the calendar are taken.' When the young man heard this answer, he replied, well, good-bye. I am going away. When I shall have found three people, sillier than you, I will come back and marry your daughter. So he continued his journey, and after walking a long way he reached an orchard. There he saw some people knocking down walnuts, and trying to throw them into a cart with a fork. What are you doing there? he asked. We want to load the cart with our walnuts, but we can't manage to do it. The lover advised them to get a basket and to put the walnuts in it, so as to turn them into the cart. Well, he said to himself, I have already found someone more foolish than those three. So he went on his way, and by and by he came to a wood. There he saw a man 
who wanted to give his pig some acorns to eat, and was trying with all his might to make him climb up the oak tree. "'What are you doing, my good man?' asked he. "'I want to make my pig eat some acorns, and I can't get him to go up the tree. If you were to climb up and shake down the acorns, the pig would pick them up.' "'Oh, I never thought of that.' "'Here is the second idiot,' said the lover to himself. Some way farther along the road, he came upon a man who had never worn any trousers, and who was trying to put on a pair, so he had fastened them to a tree, and was jumping with all his might up in the air, so that he should hit the two legs of the trousers as he came down. "'It would be much better if you held them in your hands,' said the young man, and then put your legs one after the other in each hole. "'Dear me, to be sure! You are sharper than I am, for that never occurred to me.' And having found three people more foolish than his bride, or her father, or her mother, the lover went back to marry the young lady. And in course of time they had a great many children. End of the Six Sillies by Andrew Lang Recording by Bob Gonzalez The Six Swans from the Fairy Book by Miss Mullock This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Once upon a time, a king, hunting in a great forest, chased a wild boar so eagerly that none of his people could follow him. When the evening came, he stopped to look about him and saw that he had lost himself. He sought everywhere for a way out of the wood, but could find none. Then he perceived coming towards him an old woman, whose head kept constantly shaking. She was a witch. "'My good woman,' he said to her, "'Cannot you show me the way through the wood?' "'Oh, yes, your majesty,' answered she. "'That I can, but only on one condition. "'And if you do not agree to it, you will never get out, "'and must die here of hunger.' "'What is the condition?' asked the king. "'I have an only daughter,' said the old woman. "'She is as beautiful as any one you could find in the wide world, "'and well deserves to be your wife.' If you will make her your queen, I will show you the way out of the wood. The king, in the fear of his heart, consented, and the old woman led him to her house, where her daughter sat by the fire. She received the king as if she had expected him, and he saw that she was very beautiful. But still, she did not please him, and he could not look at her without a secret shudder. After he had lifted up the maiden beside him on his horse, the old woman showed him the way, and the king arrived again at his royal castle where the wedding was celebrated. He had been married once before, and had by his first wife seven children, six boys and a girl, whom he loved more than anything in the world. But because he was afraid that the stepmother might not treat them well, or might even do them some harm, he took them to a lonely castle which stood in the middle of a wood. It was so hidden, and the road was so difficult to find, that he himself could not have found it, if a wise woman had not given him a wonderful skein of thread, which, when he threw it down before him, unrolled of itself and showed him the way. 
the king went out so often to his dear children that the queen noticed his absence and was full of curiosity to know what business took him thus alone to the wood so she gave his servants a sum of money and they told her the secret and also told her of the skein which was the only thing that could show the way after that she never rested till she found out where the king kept the skein then she made some little white silk shirts and as she had learned witchcraft from her mother she sewed a spell into every one of them and one day when the king was gone out to hunt she took the little shirts and went into the wood and the skein showed her the way the six brothers who saw some one in the distance thought their dear father was coming and ran to meet him full of joy as they approached the queen threw one of the shirts over each of them and when the shirt touched their bodies they were changed into swans and flew away over the wood the witch's daughter went home quite happy and thought she had got rid of all of her stepchildren but the one little girl had not run out with her brothers and the queen knew nothing about her next day the king came joyfully to visit his children but he found nobody except the little sister where are your brothers asked he oh dear father she answered they are gone and they have left me alone and then she told him all that she had seen out of her window how her brothers were turned into swans and had flown away over the wood she also showed him the feathers which they had dropped into the courtyard and which she had picked up the king was grieved but he never thought that the queen had done this wicked deed however because he dreaded lest the little girl would be stolen from him likewise he wished to take her away with him but she was afraid of the stepmother and begged the king to let her stay one night more in the castle in the wood the poor little girl thought i cannot rest here any longer i will go and look for my brothers and when the night came she ran away and went straight into the wood she went on all through the night and the next day too till she was so tired that she could go no further then she saw a little house and went in and found a room with six little beds she did not dare to lie down in any but crept under one of them laid herself on the hard floor and meant to pass the night there but when the sun was just going to set she heard a rustling and saw six swans come flying in at the window they sat down on the floor and blew at one another and blew all their feathers off and took off their swans skins like shirts then the little girl saw them and recognized her brothers and was very glad and crept out from under the bed the brothers were not less rejoiced when they saw their little sister but their joy did not last long you cannot stop here they said to her this is a house belonging to robbers if they come home and find you they will kill you cannot you protect me asked the little sister no answered they we can only take off our swan skins for a quarter of an hour every evening and have our natural shape for that time but afterwards we are turned into swans again the little sister cried and said can you not be released oh no they answered the conditions are too hard you must not speak or laugh for six years and must make for us six shirts out of stitchweed during that time if while you are making them a single word comes out of your mouth 
all of your work will be of no use. When her brothers had said this, the quarter of an hour was over, and they turned into swans again, and flew out of the window. But the little girl made a firm resolution to release her brothers, even if it cost her her life. She left the house, and went into the middle of the wood, and climbed up in a tree and spent the night there. Next morning she got down, collected a quantity of stitchweed, and began to sew. She could not speak to anyone, and she did not want to laugh, so she sat and only looked at her work. When she had been there a long time it happened that the king of the country was hunting in the wood, and his hunters came to the tree on which the little girl sat. They called to her and said, Who are you? But she gave them no answer. Come down to us, they said. We will not do you any harm. But she only shook her head. As they kept teasing her with their questions, she threw them down her gold necklace, and thought they would be satisfied with that. But they did not leave off, so she threw her sash down to them. And as that was no good, she threw down her garters, and at last everything she had on, and could spare, so that she had nothing left but her shift. But the hunters would not be sent away, and climbed up the tree and brought down the little girl, and took her to the king. The king asked, Who are you? What were you doing up in the tree? But she did not answer. He asked in all the languages that he knew, but she remained as dumb as a fish. But because she was so beautiful, the king's heart was moved, and he fell deeply in love with her. He wrapped his cloak round her, took her before him on his horse, and brought her to his castle. Then he had her dressed in rich clothes, and she shone in her beauty like bright sunshine. But they could not get a word out of her. He set her by him at the table, and her modest look and proper behavior pleased him so much that he said, I will marry her and no one else in the world, and after a few days he was married to her. But the king had a wicked mother, who was not pleased with this marriage, and spoke ill of the young queen. Who knows where this girl comes from, she said. She cannot speak. She is not good enough for a king. A year after, when the queen brought her first child into the world, the old mother took it away and smeared her mouth with blood while she was asleep. Then she went to the king and accused her of eating her child. The king would not believe it and would not let anyone do her any harm. And she always sat and sewed the shirts, and took no notice of anything else. Next time, when she had another beautiful baby, the wicked stepmother did the same as before. But the king could not resolve to believe what she said. He said, My wife is too pious and good to do such a thing. If she were not dumb, and if she could defend herself, her innocence would be made clear. But when for the third time the old woman took away the newborn child and accused the queen, who could not say a word in her own defense, the king could not help himself. He was forced to give her up to the court of justice, and she was condemned to suffer death by fire. When the day came upon which the sentence was to be executed, it was exactly the last day of the six years, in which she might not speak or laugh, and she had freed her dear brothers from the power of the spell. The six little shirts were finished, except that on the last one a sleeve was wanting. When she came to the place of execution, she laid the shirts on her arm, 
and when she stood at the stake, and the fire was just going to be lit, she looked round, and there came six swans flying through the air. Then her heart leapt with joy, for she saw her deliverance was near. The swans flew to her, and crouched down so that she could throw the shirts over them. As soon as the shirts were touched by them, their swan skins fell off, and her brothers stood before her. They were all grown up, strong and handsome. Only the youngest had no left arm, but instead of it a swan's wing. They hugged and kissed their sister many times, and then the queen went to the king, and began to speak, and said, Dearest husband, now I may speak, and declare to you that I am innocent and falsely accused. And she told him about the deceit of the old mother, who had taken away her three children and hidden them. However, they were soon fetched safely back, to the great joy of the king, and the wicked mother-in-law was tied to the stake and burnt to ashes. But the king and queen, with their six brothers, lived many years in peace and happiness. End of The Six Swans from the Fairy Book by Miss Mullock Read by Rhonda Fetterman Six times six is thirty-six, and six is forty-two. Lyric by Bert Hanlon, music by William White. From Ziegfeld's Midnight Frolic, 1917. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Since I've been so very high I've tried to multiply At spelling I was awful bad But numbers nearly drove me mad History, gee, that's a cinch But mathematics, they're the clinch I don't know why on earth I'm thick But I simple can't do arithmetic Six times six is thirty-six And six is forty-two I don't care what you may say I know that's hard to do But it always keeps me worried Then that makes me feel blue Six times six is thirty-six And six is forty-two Gee, I wish that I could add I'd like to be as smart as Dad There's not a figure he don't know He keeps books for a Broadway show I had a little rabbit once And gee, it was an awful dunce But still that thing could multiply If rabbits can, then why can't I? Six times six is thirty-six And six is forty-two I don't care what you may say, I know that's hard to do But it always keeps me worried, then that makes me feel blue Six times six is thirty-six, and six is forty-two End of six times six is thirty-six, and six is forty-two By Bert Hanlon and William White Recording by Ruth Golding
Six Weeks Old by Christopher Morley. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. He is so small he does not know the summer sun, the winter snow, the spring that ebbs and comes again. All this is far beyond his kin. A little world he feels and sees, his mother's arms, his mother's knees. He hides his face against her breast and does not care to learn the rest. End of Six Weeks Old by Christopher Morley Read by Laurie Ann Walden When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sixes Self-Registering Thermometer Section 81 of A Treatise on Meteorological Instruments by Negretti and Zambra This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 81 Sixes Self-Registering Thermometer the very ingenious and certainly elegant instrument about to be described was invented by James Six of Colchester. It consists of a long cylindrical bulb, united to a tube of more than twice its length, bent round each side of it in the form of a siphon, and terminated in a smaller, oval-shaped bulb. Figure 62 gives a representation of this instrument. The lower portion of the siphon is filled with mercury. The long bulb the other parts of the tube, and part of the small bulb, with highly rectified alcohol. A steel index moves in the spirit in each limb of the siphon. The two indices are terminated at top and bottom with a bead of glass, to enable them to move with the least possible friction, and without causing separation of the spirit, or allowing mercury to pass easily. They would, from their weight, always rest upon the mercury but each has a fine hair tied to its upper extremity and bent against the interior of the tube, which acts as a spring with a sufficient elasticity to keep the index supported in the spirit in opposition to gravity. The instrument acts as follows. A rise of temperature causes the spirit in the long bulb to expand and press some of the mercury into the other limb of the siphon, into which it rises also from its own expansion, and carries the index with it until the greatest temperature is attained. The lower end of this index then indicates upon the engraved scale the maximum temperature. As the temperature falls, the spirit and the mercury contract, and in returning towards the bulb, the second index is met and carried up by the mercury until the lowest temperature occurs, when it is left to indicate upon the scale the minimum temperature. The limb of the siphon adjoining the bulb requires, therefore, a descending scale of thermometric degrees, the other limb an ascending scale. The graduations must be obtained by comparisons with a standard thermometer under artificial temperatures, which should be done in this way for every five degrees, in order to correct for the inequality in the bore of the tube, and the irregular expansion of the spirit, 
the instrument is set for observation by bringing the indices into contact with the mercury by means of a small magnet which attracts the steel through the glass so that it is readily drawn up or down they should be drawn nearly to the top of the limbs when it is desired to remove the instrument which should be carefully carried in the vertical position for should it be inverted or laid flat the spirit may get among the mercury and so break up the column as to require the skill of a maker to put it in order again for transmission by ordinary conveyances it requires that attention be given to keep it vertical the entanglement of a small portion of mercury with the indices is sometimes a source of annoyance in this instrument for the readings are thereby rendered somewhat incorrect small breakages in the mercury either from intervening bubbles of spirit or adhesion to the indices may generally be rectified by cautiously tapping the frame of the instrument so as to cause the mercury to unite by the assistance thus given to its superior gravity these thermometers when carefully made and adjusted to a standard thermometer are strongly recommended for ordinary purposes where strict scientific accuracy is not required this is also the only fluid thermometer applicable for determining the temperature of the sea at depths end of section eighty one of a treatise on meteorological instruments by negretti and zambra The Sixpenny Calico from the Old Castle and Other Stories by an anonymous author. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. One day a new scholar appeared in school, and as usual was the mark of public gaze she was gentle and modest-looking and never ventured to lift her eyes from her books at recess to the inquiries who is she what's her name nobody could satisfactorily answer none of us ever saw or heard of her before i know she's not much said one of the girls poorly off said i do you see her dress why i believe it is nothing but a sixpenny calico poor thing she must be cold i can't imagine how a person can wear calico in winter said another whose rich plaid was the admiration of the school i must say i like to see a person dressed according to the season remarked another that is if people can afford it she added in a manner plainly enough indicating that her father could such was recess talk none of us went to take the stranger by the hand and welcome her as the companion of our studies and our play we stood aloof and stared at her with cold and unfeeling curiosity the teacher called her abby when she first came to her place for recitation she took a seat beside the rich plaid the plaid drew haughtily away as if the sixpenny calico might dim the beauty of its colours a slight colour flushed abby's cheek but her quiet remained the same it was some time before she ventured on the playground and then it was only to stand aside and look on 
for we were slow in asking her to join us on one occasion we had a harder arithmetic lesson than usual completely baffling our small brains upon comparing notes at recess none of us had mastered it i'll ask abby of her success said one of my intimate associates it is quite unlikely she has i replied do stay here besides what if she has i will go she answered away she went and as it appeared abby and she were the only members of the class ready for recitation abby had been more successful than the rest of us and kindly helped my friend to scale the difficulties of the lesson shall we ask abby to join the sleigh ride asked one of the girls who was getting a subscription for a famous new year's ride judging from her dress i said if she goes we must give her the ride but how will it do to leave her out they asked she does not of course expect to be asked to ride with us i said she is evidently of a poor family as a sort of leader in school my words were influential and poor abby was left out how often did i contrast my white hands and warm gloves with the purple fingers and cheap mittens of my neighbour abby how miserable i should be with such working hands and no gloves by and by i took to patronising her she is really a very nice creature and ought to join us more in our plays we said so we used to make her one of us in the playground in fact i began to thaw towards her very considerably there was something in abby which called out our respect one saturday afternoon as i was looking out of the window wishing for something to do my mother asked me to join her in a little walk on went my new cloak warm furs and pink hat and in a trice i was ready we went first to the stores where i was very glad to be met by several acquaintances in my handsome winter dress at last i found my mother turning off into less frequented thoroughfares where mother i asked in this vulgar part of the town not vulgar my dear she said a very respectable and industrious part of our population live here not fashionable certainly i added and not vulgar because not fashionable by any means she said for you may be sure my false and often foolish notions were not gained from her she stopped before a humble-looking house and entered the front door where are you going i asked with much curiosity she gently opened a side door and hesitated a moment on the threshold caroline come in said a voice from within i am very happy to see you pray don't rise dear said my mother going forward and affectionately kissing a sick lady who sat in a rocking-chair you look better than when i saw you before do not exert yourself i was introduced 
and I fancied the invalid looked at me with a sort of admiring surprise as she took my hand and hoped I should prove worthy of such a mother. Then, while my mother and she were talking, I sat down and took notes with my eyes of everything in the room. It looked beautifully neat, and the furniture evidently had seen better days. By and by mother asked for her daughter. "'Gone out on some errands,' said the sick lady. "'The dear child is an inexpressible blessing to me,' and tears filled her eyes. "'A mother might well be thankful for such a daughter. She is a pattern my child might safely imitate.' I thought I should be exceedingly glad to see the person my mother was so willing I should copy. "'She will return soon,' said the invalid. "'She has gone to carry some work which she has contrived to do in her leisure moments. "'The self-sacrifice of the child is wonderful. "'She seems to desire nothing that other girls of her age generally want. "'A little while ago an early friend who had found me out and befriended me, as you have done.' "'Tears came into the speaker's eyes.' "'Send her a handsome winter dress. "'Oh, mother,' she said, "'this is too expensive for me "'when you want some warm flannel so. "'I told her it was just what she needed. "'A few days afterwards "'she went out and came home "'with a roll of flannel and a calico dress. "'See, mother,' she said, "'I shall enjoy this calico a hundred times more "'than the finest dress in the world "'when you can have your flannel.' "'Excuse me for telling it, but you know a mother's heart. "'There is her step. She is coming.' "'The outer door opened. "'How I longed to see the comer! "'A perfect angel, I thought, so generous, so disinterested, so good. "'I should love her.' "'The latch was lifted. "'A young girl entered, and my schoolfellow Abby stood before me. I could have sunk into the earth for very shame. How wicked my pride! How false and foolish my judgments! Oh, how mean did my fine winter dress appear before the plain sixpenny calico! I was almost sure my mother had managed all this, for she had a way of making me see my faults and making me desire to cure them without ever saying much directly herself. This, however, had not come about by her intervention. God taught me by his providence. As we walked home, my mother gave me an account of Mrs. G., an early friend who made an imprudent marriage. But that story is no matter here. I will only add... My judgment of people was formed ever after according to a better standard than the dress they wore, and that Abby and I became intimate friends. End of the Sixpenny Calico by an Anonymous Author Recording by Ruth Golding Sixteen Dead Men by William Butler Yeats this is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Oh, but we talked at large before the sixteen men were shot. But who can talk of give and take, what should be and what not, while those dead men are loitering there to stir the boiling pot? You say that we should still the land till Germany's overcome. But who is there to argue that, now Pierce is deaf and dumb? And is there logic to outweigh Macdonough's bony thumb? How could you dream they'd listen, that have an ear alone for those new comrades they have found, Lord Edward and Wolf Tone, or meddle with our give and take, that converse bone to bone? End of Sixteen Dead Men by William Butler Yeats Read by Rhonda Fetterman Sixteen Years Without a Birthday From Tales of Fantasy and Fact by Brander Matthews This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sixteen Years Without a Birthday While the journalist deftly dealt with the lobster a la Newburgh as it bubbled in the chafing dish before him, the deep-toned bell of the church at the corner began to strike twelve. "'Give me your plates, quick,' he said, "'and we'll drink Jack's health before it's tomorrow.' The artist and the soldier and the professor of mathematics did as they were told, and then they filled their glasses. The journalist, still standing, looked the soldier in the eye and said, "'Jack, this is the first time the quartet has met since the old school days, ten years ago or more. "'That this reunion should take place on your birthday doubles the pleasure of the occasion. "'We wish you many happy returns of the day.' "'Then the artist and mathematician rose also, and they looked at the soldier and repeated together, "'Many happy returns of the day.' "'Whereupon they emptied their glasses and sat down, and the soldier rose to his feet.' "'Thank you, boys,' he began, "'but I think you have already made me enjoy this one birthday three times over. "'It was yesterday that I was twenty-six, and—' "'But I didn't meet you till last night,' interrupted the journalist, "'and yesterday was Sunday, and I couldn't get a box for the theater "'and find the other half of the quartet all on Sunday, could I?' "'I'm not complaining because yesterday was my real birthday,' the soldier returned. "'Even if you have now protracted the celebration on to the third day, "'if it's just struck midnight, you know.' All I have to say is that since you have given me a triplicate birthday this time, any future anniversary will have to spread itself over four days if it wants to beat the record, that's all. And he took his seat again. Well, said the artist, who had recently returned from Paris, that won't happen till we see the week of the four Thursdays, as the French say. And we can't see that for a month of Sundays, I guess, the journalist rejoined. There was a moment of silence, and then the mathematician spoke for the first time. A quadruplex birthday will be odd enough, I grant you, he said, but I don't think it quite as remarkable as the case of the lady who had no birthday for sixteen years after she was born. The soldier and the artist and the journalist all looked at the professor of mathematics, and they all smiled, but his face remained perfectly grave. What's that, you say? asked the journalist. Sixteen years without a birthday? Isn't that a very large order? Did you know the lady herself? inquired the soldier. She was my grandmother, the mathematician answered. She had no birthday for the first sixteen years of her life. You mean that she did not celebrate her birthdays, I suppose, the artist remarked. 
That's nothing. I know lots of families where they don't keep any anniversaries at all. No, persisted a mathematician. I meant what I said, and precisely what I said. My grandmother did not keep her first fifteen birthdays because she couldn't. She didn't happen to keep. They didn't happen. The first time she had a chance to celebrate her birthday was when she completed her sixteenth year, and I need not tell you that the family made the most of the event. This a real grandmother you are talking about, asked the journalist, and not a fairy godmother? I could understand her going without a birthday till she was four years old, the soldier suggested, as she was born on the twenty ninth of February. That accounts for four years, the mathematician admitted, since my grandmother was born on the twenty ninth of February. In what year? the soldier pursued. In seventeen ninety six? The professor of mathematics nodded. Then that accounts for eight years, said the soldier. I don't see that at all, exclaimed the artist. It's easy enough, the soldier explained. The year 1800 is in a leap year, you know. We have a leap year every four years, except the final year of a century, 1700, 1800, 1900. I didn't know that, said the artist. I've forgotten it, remarked the journalist, but that gets us over only half of the difficulty. He says his grandmother didn't have a birthday till she was 16. We can all see now how it was that she went without this annual luxury for the first eight years. But who robbed her of the birthday she was entitled to when she was eight and twelve? That's what I want to know. Born February twenty ninth, seventeen ninety six, the Gregorian calendar deprives her of a birthday in eighteen hundred, the soldier said. But she ought to have had her first chance February twenty ninth, eighteen o four. I don't see how and he paused in doubt. Oh, he cried suddenly, where was she living in eighteen o four? Most of the time in Russia, the mathematician answered, although the family went to England for a few days early in the year. What was the date when they left Russia? asked the soldier eagerly. They sailed from St. Petersburg in a Russian bark on the 10th of February, answered the professor of mathematics, and owing to headwinds they did not reach England for a fortnight. Exactly, cried the soldier. That's what I thought. That accounts for it. I don't see how, the artist declared. That is, unless you mean to suggest that the star confiscated the little American girl's birthday and sent it to Siberia. It's plain enough, the soldier returned. We have the reform calendar, the Gregorian calendar, you know, and the Russians haven't. They keep the old Julian calendar, and it's now ten days behind ours. They celebrate Christmas three days after we have begun the new year. So the little girl left St. Petersburg in a Russian ship on February 10th, 1804, by the old reckoning, and was on the water two weeks. She would land in England after March 1st by the new calendar. As I say, the artist inquired, the little girl came into an English port thinking she was going to have her birthday the next week, and when she set foot on shore she found that her birthday was passed a week before. Is that what you mean? Yes, answered the soldier, and the mathematician nodded also. Then all I have to say, the artist continued, is that it was a mean trick on the plan of a child that had been looking forward to her first birthday for eight years, to knock her into the middle of the next week in that faction. And she had to go four years more for her next chance, said the journalist. Then she would be twelve. But you said she hadn't a birthday till she was sixteen. How did she lose the one she was entitled to in 1808? She wasn't on a Russian ship again, was she? No, the mathematician replied. She was on an American ship that time. On the North Sea? asked the artist. No, was the calm answer. On the Pacific. Sailing east or west? cried the soldier. Sailing east, answered the professor of mathematics, smiling again. Then I see how it might happen, the soldier declared. Well, I don't, confessed the artist. The journalist said nothing, as it seemed unprofessional to admit ignorance of anything. It is simple enough, the soldier explained. You see, the world is revolving around the sun steadily, and it is always high noon somewhere on the globe. 
The day rolls around unceasing, and it is not cut off in the twenty-four hours. We happen to have taken the day of Greenwich or Paris as the day of civilization, and we say that it begins earlier in China and later in California, but it is all the same date, we say. Therefore there has to be some place out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean where we lose or gain a day. If we are going east, we gain it. If we are going west, we lose it. Now I suppose this little girl of twelve was on her way from some Asiatic port to some American port, and they stopped on their voyage at Honolulu. Perhaps they dropped anchor there just before midnight on their February 28, 1808, thinking that the morrow would be the 29th. But when they were hailed from the shore just after midnight, they found that it was already March 1st. As the soldier finished, he looked at the mathematician for confirmation of his explanation. This appealed to, the professor of mathematics smiled and nodded and said, You have hit it. That's just how it was that my grandmother lost the birthday she ought to have had when she was twelve, and had to go four years more without one. And so she really didn't have a birthday till she was sixteen, the artist observed. Well, all I can say is, your great-grandfather took too many chances. I don't think he gave the child a fair show. I hope he made it up to her when she was sixteen. That's all. An hour later, the quartet separated. The soldier and the artist walked away together, but the journalist delayed the mathematician. I say, he began, that yarn about your grandmother was very interesting. It is an extraordinary combination of coincidences. I can see it in a Sunday paper with a scarehead. Sixteen years without a birthday. Do you mind my using it? But it isn't true, said the professor. Not true? echoed the journalist. No, replied the mathematician. I made it up. I hadn't done my share of the talking, and I didn't want you to think I had nothing to say for myself. Not a single word of truth in it, the journalist returned. Not a single word, was the mathematician's answer. Well, what of that? the journalist declared. I don't want to file it in an affidavit. I want to print it in a newspaper. End of Sixteen Years Without a Birthday from Tales of Fantasy and Fact by Brander Matthews. Recording by Gabrielle C. The Sixth Litany, Benedicta II, from A Lover's Litanies by Eric Mackay. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I tell thee, sweet, there lives not on the earth a love like mine in all the height and girth and all the vast completion of the sphere. I should be proud to-day to shed a tear if I could weep, but tears are most denied when most besought, and joys are sanctified by joys undoing in this world of ours from dusk to dawn and dawn to eventide. Wert thou a marble maid, and I endowed with power to move thee from thy seeming shroud of frozen splendour, all thy whiteness mine, and all the glamour, all the tender shine of thy glad eyes. Ah, God, if this were so, and I the loosener in the summer glow of thy long tresses, I were licensed then to gaze unchidden on thy limbs of snow. I would prepare for thee a holy niche in some new temple, and with draperies rich, and flowers and lamps, and incense of the best, I would with something of mine own unrest imbue thy blood, and prompt thee to be just. 
I would endow thee with a fairer trust than mere contentment, and a dearer joy than mere revulsion from the sins of dust. A band of boys with psaltery and with lyre, and Cyprian girls, the slaves of thy desire, would chant and pray and raise so wild a storm of golden notes around thy sculptured form, that saints would hear the chorus up in heaven, and intermingle with their holy steven the sighs of earth, and long for other cares than those ordained them by the Lord's eleven. I would approach thee with a master's tread, and claim thy hand, and have the service read by youthful priests resplendent every one, and in thy frame the blood of thee would run as warm and sound as wine of Syracuse. And all that day the birds would bear the news in far directions, and the meadow-flowers would dream thereof, love-laden in the dews. Then, by magnetic force, the greatest known this side the tomb, I would athwart the stone of thy white body in a trice of time, call forth thy soul, and woo thee to the chime of tinkling bells, and make thee half afraid and half aggrieved, to find thyself arrayed in such enthrallment and in such attire, in sight of one whose will should not be stayed. And, like Pygmalion, I would claim anon a bride's submission, and my talk thereon would not perplex thee, for the sense of life would warm thy heart, and urge thee to the strife of lip with lip, and kiss with pulsing kiss which gives the clue to all we know of bliss, and all we know of heights we long to climb beyond the boundaries of the grave's abyss. The dear old deeds chivalrous once again would find fulfilment, and the curse of Cain, which fell on woman as on men it fell, would fly from us as at a sorcerer's spell, and leave us wiser than the sophists are who love not folly. Night should not debar, nor day dissuade us, from those ecstasies that have Anacreon's fame for guiding star. Ay, thou wouldst kneel and seek in me apace a transient shelter for thine amorous face, which then I'd scream, and thou to me wouldst turn with awe-struck eyes, and cling to me and yearn, with sighs full tender, and a touch of fear. And like a bird which knows that spring is near, and after spring the summer of sweet days, thou wouldst attune thy love-notes in mine ear. Or, fraught with feelings near akin to hate, thou wouldst denounce me, and like one elate, thou wouldst entwine me in thine arms so white, as soldier-nymphs with rap and raging sight made war with spearsmen in the vales of song, the vales of Sparta, where for right or wrong the gods were potent, and for beauty's sake upheld the tawnies of the fair and strong. I would not seem too wilful in the heat of our encounter, or with sighs repeat too fierce a vow. I would throughout confess thy murderous mirth, thy conquering loveliness, 
and then subdue thee. Tears would not avail, nor prayer, nor praise, and flushed the while or pale, thou shouldst be mine, my hostage in the night, without the option of a moment's bail. Thou shouldst be mine, my hopes from first to last would win their way, and lies and love aghast and all unnerved, thou wouldst, as in a dream, entreat my pardon. I would callous seem to thine out-yearning, I would cast on thee a questioning look, and then, upon my knee, I would surrender to that face of thine, which is the great world's wonder unto me. O oh, heaven, could this be done, and I fulfil one half my wish, and curb thee to my will, I were a prompter and a prouder man than earth has known since lightfoot lovers ran for Atalanta, loved of men and boys. I were a Kaiser then, a king of joys, and fit to play with high-begotten pomps, as children play with pebbles or with toys. O oh, golden hair! O oh, gladness of an hour made flesh and blood! O oh, beauteous human flower too sweet to pluck! And yet, though seeming cold, ordained to love! I pray thee, as of old, be kind to me! I saw thee yesternight, and for an instant I was urged to plight my troth again, for in thy face I saw what seemed a smile evoked for my delight. Regrant thy favour, take me by the hand and lead me back again to thine own land, the nook supreme, the sanctum in the glen where pixies walk, unknown to peevish men and shrew like women whom no faith uplifts. Show me the place where nature keeps the gifts she most approves, and where the songbirds dwell, and I'll forgo the land of little thrifts. The moon is mother, and the sun is sire of those young planets which, with infant fire, have late been found in regions too remote for quicklier search. And these, in time, will dote and whirl and wanton in the realms of space. For there are comets in the nightly chase Who see strange things untalked of by the bards, And earth herself has found a trysting place. And so tis clear that sun and moon and stars Are linked by love. The marriage feast of Mars was fixed long since, Tis Venus whom he weds. Tis she alone for whom he gaily treads his path of splendour, And of Saturn's ring he knows the symbol, And will have, in spring, a night betrothal near the southern cross. And all the stars will pause thereat and sing. What wonder, then, what wonder if to-day I too assert my right in roundelay To talk of rings and posies, and the vows that wait on marriage. Tis the wild carouse of soul with soul athwart the sense of touch. 
tis this uplifts us when with fever clutch the world would claim us and our hopes revive in spite of fears that daunt us overmuch lips may be coy but eyes are quick at times to note the throbbings that are hot as crimes and fond as flutterings of the wings of doves for he is blind indeed who when he loves doubts all he sees the flickering of a smile the parthian glance the nod that for a while outbids elysium and is half a jest and half a truth to tempt us and beguile thine eyes have told me things i dare not speak and i will trust the track they bid me seek yea though it lead me to the gates of death the wind is labouring it is out of breath belike for scampering up the hill so fast to say all's well with thee and down the blast i seem to hear the sounds of serenades that swell from out the song-fields of the past end of the sixth litany by eric mackay recording by ruth golding august 2011A Song of Sixty-Five by Robert W. Service. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Song of Sixty-Five Brave Thackeray has trolled of days when he was twenty-one, and bounded up five flights of stairs, a gallant garretteer, and yet again in mellow vein, when youth was gaily run, has dipped his nose in Gascon wine, and told of forty year. But if I worthy were to sing a richer, rarer time, I'd tune my pipes before the fire, and merrily I'd strive, to praise that age when prose again has given way to rhyme, the Indian summer days of life, when I'll be sixty-five. For then my work will all be done, my voyaging be past, and I'll have earned the right to rest, where folding hills are green. So in some glassy anchorage I'll make my cable fast. Oh, let the seas show all their teeth, I'll sit and smile serene. The storm may bellow round the roof, I'll bide beside the fire. And many a scene of sail and trail within the flame I'll see, for I'll have worn away the spur of passion and desire. Oh, yes, when I am sixty-five, what peace will come to me? I'll take my breakfast in my bed, I'll rise at half-past ten, When all the world is nicely groomed and full of golden song, I'll smoke a bit and joke a bit, and read the news, and then I'll potter round my peach-trees till I hear the luncheon gong. And after that I think I'll doze an hour, well, maybe two, And then I'll show some kindred soul how well my roses thrive. I'll do the things I never yet have found the time to do. Oh, won't I be the busy man when I am sixty-five? I'll revel in my library. I'll read de Morgan's books. I'll grow so garrulous I fear you'll write me down a bore. I'll watch the ways of ants and bees in quiet sunny nooks. I'll understand creation as I never did before. When gossips round the teacups talk, I'll listen to it all. On smiling days some kindly friend 
will take me for a drive. I'll own a shaggy collie dog that dashes to my call. I'll celebrate my second youth when I am sixty-five. Ah, though I've twenty years to go, I see myself quite plain, a wrinkling, twinkling, rosy-cheeked, benevolent old chap. I think I'll wear a tartan shawl and lean upon a cane. I hope that I'll have silver hair beneath a velvet cap. I see my little grandchildren a-romping round my knee. So gay the scene I almost wish t'would hasten to arrive. Let others sing of youth and spring. Still will it seem to me the golden time's the olden time, some time round sixty-five. End of A Song of Sixty-Five by Robert W. Service Recording by Katie Riley August 2011special orders number six by the confederate states of america army second virginia cavalry regiment this is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of librivox all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. headquarters munford's cavalry brigade april twenty one eighteen sixty five special orders number six soldiers i have just received a communication from the president of the confederate states ordering us again to the field in defence of our liberties general johnson with an army constantly increasing well appointed and disciplined still upholds our glorious banner we are ordered to report to him our cause is not dead let the same stern determination to be free which has supported you for four years of gallant struggle still animate you and it can never die one disaster however serious cannot crush out the spirit of virginians and make them tamely submit to their enemies who have given us during all these terrible years of war so many evidences of their devilish malignity in our devastated fields our burned homesteads our violated daughters and our murdered thousands virginians will understand that their present pretended policy of conciliation is but the cunning desire of the yankee to lull us to sleep while they rivet the chains they have been making such gigantic efforts to forge and which they will as surely make us wear for ever if we tamely submit we have sworn a thousand times by our eternal wrongs by our sacred god-given rights by the memory of our noble fathers and our glorious past by our gallant dead who lie in every plain of our war-scarred state by our glorious victories on many a well-fought field that we would be free shall we not keep our oaths can we kneel down by the graves of our dead kneel in the very blood from suns yet fresh and kiss the rod which smote them down never never better die a thousand deaths we have still the power to resist there are more men at home to-day belonging to the army of northern virginia than were surrendered at appomattox let them rally to the call of our president and virginia our beloved old commonwealth shall yet stand triumphant and defiant with her foot upon her tyrants prostrate and her proud old banner never yet sullied with its sic semper tyrannis streaming over her soldiers of the old brigade to you i confidently appeal you have never been surrendered 
cutting your way out of the enemy's lines before the surrender was determined, you, together with the majority of the cavalry, are free to follow your country's flag. The eyes of your Virginia, now bleeding at every pore, turns with special interest to you. Will you desert her at her sorest need? You will never descend to such infamy. Let us renew our vows and swear again by our broken altars to be free or die. Let us teach our children eternal hostility to our foes. What though we perish in the fight? As surely as the God of justice reigns, the truth, the right, will triumph, and though we may not, our children will win the glorious fight, for it is not within the nature of her southern sons to wear the chains of Yankee rule. We have still a country, a flag, an army, a government. Then to horse, to horse! A circular will be sent to each of your officers, designating the time and place of assembly. Hold yourselves in instant readiness, and bring all true men with you from this command who will go, and let us who struck the last blow as an organized part of the Army of Northern Virginia, strike the first with that victorious army which, by the blessings of our gracious God, will yet come to redeem her hallowed soil. Thomas T. Munford, Brigadier General, Commanding Division. End of Special Orders Number 6 by the Confederate States of America Army, 2nd Virginia Cavalry Regiment.